digging into the book of Proverbs this summer, and today we're going to dig into chapter four that is not primarily a chapter about what not to do. Oh, there's plenty of that in the book of Proverbs. This is a chapter about what to do because it's a chapter about how to live. So turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter four, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse one. And remember what I want you to do. When I finish reading this chapter, I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and I want you to say, thanks be to God. Because there's a big difference between what Brad Bigney says, or Peter, or Brian, or Ryan, and God. We're grateful we have God's word still today. Verse 1, Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she'll preserve you. Love her and she'll keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, Get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she'll promote you. She'll bring you honor. When you embrace her, she'll place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she'll deliver to you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings. And the years of your life will be many. I've taught you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they do not sleep unless they have done evil and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence but the path of the righteous is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day the way of the wicked is like darkness they do not know what makes them stumble My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them. And health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it springs the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. The word of the Lord. Trying to help you out there. Now as we dig into this chapter today... I want to show you three of the biggest factors that will determine the direction of your life. In other words, look at me. You don't have to be surprised about where you end up. I don't know how I got here. You don't have to be surprised. Number one, your choices are what determine who you become and where you end up. Oh, we don't have time to develop it. But basically, verses 1 to 18 are all about choices that we all have to make about which path we're going to step onto. And it never ends. It never ends. For a lifetime, you keep making choices. But verse 18, where it culminates, has some really good news tucked down into it. Look at verse 18 with me again. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. What's going on here, and why is this good news? Well, even though we all have to keep making decisions, all of us, believers or unbelievers alike, dozens of decisions every day for a lifetime, you can't check out. 
What this verse is saying, when the righteous choose to do what Pastor Peter was preaching last week from Proverbs 3, and they start forming a habit of putting their trust in the Lord and leaning not on their own understanding, oh, something really good starts to happen. You find yourself walking, living with greater light, greater clarity, and less confusion in your life. And you can expect that to keep happening for a lifetime, brighter and brighter like the new dawn. You see, typically, when you do what you think, which is really hard not to do, right? You think it, it seems so right. Proverbs says there's a way which seems right to a man or woman, but the end is death. Ooh, typically, typically, the more you do what you think and go with your gut, the darker your life becomes and the more confusing life becomes. So verse 18 has some real hope tucked into it, but be careful. Don't hear what it's not saying. It does not say the path of the righteous gets easier and easier. The Bible doesn't teach that. Joel Osteen does. And other best-selling books do. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's not saying it'll get easier and easier, but there will be greater light and greater clarity and less confusion in your life. Oh, there's so much more that I could develop there, but I want to take the bulk of our time for point number two. I want to dig into point number two because this is the very heart of the message today. Number two, your choices. So life is filled with choices that are going to determine who you are and where you end up. And here's what you need to understand the Bible teaches. Number two, your choices will never change until you get a hold of what's going on in your heart heart. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 23. Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. The NIV, if you've got it in your lap, says above all else, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. The new living translation says guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. The message paraphrase says, keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. So why is this verse making so much of this word heart? Well, here's what you need to understand before we talk about the word heart for the rest of this message. Here's what you need to understand about the word heart. Not just right here in Proverbs 4.23, but in the whole Bible, the rest of the Bible. The word heart does not mean what it typically means in our English language when we use it or hear it. It is not talking primarily about our emotions and feelings. In our culture, when we say heart, that's what we think. Feelings. When the Bible uses the word heart, it is not talking primarily about emotions or feelings. When the Bible talks about your heart, look at me, it's talking about your core beliefs, your commitments, your motivations as to why you do what you do, what you really want, what is most dear to you, what you build your world around, what you prize and protect and treasure, yea, verily, what you worship. That will determine what you do, where you go, what you choose, and where you end up. And that's why the word word heart is used almost a thousand times in the Bible. Because God knows what we really need to do to change the direction of our lives. And that is to change the focus of our hearts. Because until the focus of your heart changes, look at me, the direction of your life never changes. Oh, you can work hard on changing behavior. You can say, I keep getting bad fruit. I keep ending up places I don't want to be. Until you get a hold of the heart, until you know what's in your heart, until the focus of your heart changes, the direction of your life will not change. 
Why? Here's why. Because your heart is the control center for all that's going on in your life. That's what the Bible teaches. Your heart is the control center for all that is going on in your life. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, you better pay attention to what's going on in your heart and there is always something going on in your heart. And notice it doesn't say pay attention to the heart because out of it is the very wellspring of emotion. It says pay attention to the heart because out of it is the very wellspring of life, life. Because as your heart goes, so goes your life. That's why Proverbs 23, 7, write this down, bonus. That's why Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man or woman thinks, oh, and where's he gonna put the thinking? In her heart, so is she. What a man or woman keeps saying to themselves, believing, prizing most, why they do what they do will determine who they are. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man or woman thinks in her heart, so is she. You can say with your lips all day long what you believe, what's most important. And often it doesn't line up with what's really going on in the heart. But what's going on in the heart will determine where you end up. That's why these things look like a big disconnect so often. That surprises even, guess who? You. Even yourself. How did I get here? That's why the rest of the chapter, from 23 to the end, that's why the rest of the chapter talks the way it does in verses 24 to 27. Because it's only after you get a hold of what's going on in your heart that you can even then work on what you say in verse 24. And take charge over where you place your eyes in verse 25. And think about your behavior and actions and choices in verse 26 and 27. But it all starts in the heart in verse 23. Because look at me. Your mouth, your eyes, your hands, your feet are all tied to your heart. As the heart goes, so goes the eyes, so comes out of the mouth, so goes the feet and hands and choices and behavior. And so here's what you need to understand that the Bible teaches. You're going to be really frustrated. Christians, I, I do believe, Christians still really don't understand how to change. Now they've just got some verses that say, don't keep doing that. Don't go there. Don't. But they do. And they say, why? And then they memorize a verse that says, don't. And they say, I still do, but I feel guilty because I got a verse that says, don't. It's the heart. If your heart hasn't changed, you can memorize verses all day long and still keep going where you go and wanting what you want. You'll be frustrated and waste a lot of time trying to control your mouth, guard your eyes, and guard, guide your feet if you haven't first gotten a hold of what's going on in the heart. Because here's what the verse is really teaching. What your heart loves will determine where and how your life goes. What your heart loves will determine where and how your life goes. And so you can argue all day long. That's not what's in my heart. That's not what's in my heart. That's not what's in my heart. But where your life goes can be traced back to what your heart loves every time. And so you never end up someplace on accident. That's how we like to talk sometimes. I don't know how I got here. You never end up someplace on accident. Oh, it might feel that way. Trust me, it might feel that way. And you might be confused about how you landed where you are because we struggle to even know our own hearts. You say, but it's my heart. I'd know what's going on in my heart, wouldn't I? What's the Bible teach? Is the heart easy to get your hands around? Is it easy to discern and even know what's going on in your own heart? Another bonus verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful, and who can know it? Really good news in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. We need God's help to know our own heart 
So you can be confused sometimes about how you landed where you landed in life. But it's not an accident. It's not, here, here's a word that I'll throw out. It's not as bizarre. As you, That's bizarre. That's random. No, not as random as you think. In fact, human beings are not nearly as bizarre as we would like to think, friends. Let me say this to you. You got somebody in your life right now that's confusing to you? It happens, right? What is up? How they're treating you, what they're doing, what they're choosing, the way it's impacting you, whether it's a coworker, a supervisor, a loved one, a spouse, a child, a neighbor. Are we not often confused in life? Why are they doing me this? This makes no sense. Let me help you. If you could see what's going on in their heart, it would make perfect sense. If you could see what's going on in their heart, what they really want, what their agenda is, what they're building their world around, what they live for, and you just might be in their way. Because when this happens in the heart, what we build our world around and what has the throne of our heart causes us to begin to put everybody in only two categories. If you're helping me get what I want, I'll love you, I'll let you into my life, we'll get along well. If you get in my way, I will be mean to you, I'll push you away. Conflict and confusion because of what's going on in the heart. If you could see what's going on in the heart, it would explain why they're doing what they're doing. It's not as crazy as you think. But now here's where it all gets really confusing even for Christians. Because this whole issue that we're wrestling with today that the Bible's filled with is not just that you get in trouble. It's not just that you get in trouble when you build your world or your heart's affections around bad things or sinful things, but even when you make too much of good things, even good things, too much. The, the Puritans called it this. The Puritans talked about this and called it inordinate desires. The desire in and of itself is not sin. Oh, I want to have a good marriage. Oh, I want to have godly kids. Oh, I'd like to feel appreciated at work and recognized for the hard work that I do. On and on we could go. Is any of that sinful? But what happens if it moves from a desire to a demand that I build my world around, put all my hopes in, my greatest affections are in, and that is what rules me and determines good day, bad day? Mm. The Bible has a word for it. Whenever we shift and make too much of something, even a good thing, and allow it to rule the throne of our hearts, and it is why I do what I do. There's a word. What is that? That you're putting something ahead of God. Idols of the heart or idolatry. Is that a serious sin or a little one? Really serious. It'll mess you up. On two levels, it'll mess up your vertical relationship with God and it will mess up your horizontal relationship with other people. Whoo! And then you say, I just don't feel close to God. I don't feel the intimacy with God. I just, yeah. And I got all these conflicts and problems with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you will. There's nothing wrong with a desire in and of itself often. It's just that when you want it too much and make it the top priority in your life and build your world around it, that you begin to lose all sense of biblical priority. And so here's what will happen. You'll end up sacrificing biblically important things on the altar of your idolatrous desires. You say, Brad, I don't understand. Let me try to help you. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Money. We just did a money series in January. Is money evil? More robust. No. It's not sinful. It's not evil. It's not wrong to have money. It's not even wrong to want to have money. Bible doesn't teach that. But woo, the disordered love of money leads to all kinds of confusion and heartache in your life. See, if money stops being a good thing 
and it starts being the ultimate thing for you because of how it makes you feel. Maybe it makes you feel secure or important or enables you to get the things that you have determined are synonymous with the good life. Then you will start making decisions and choosing jobs that don't fulfill you because they don't even match your gifts. But your litmus test for every decision about career or job is, is it more money? Then the answer is yes. Is it more money? Then yes, 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 yes. And so you'll burn out faster than other people and start feeling more empty and disheartened in what you're doing sooner than other people and all the while wondering what's wrong, but you allowed a good thing to become a God thing. And when that happens, you will be disoriented and it will mess up your relationship with God and other people. Let me tell you how that one will begin to impact your relationship with other people. If money's not just a good thing, but it's a God thing in your life, it will lead you to exploit other people instead of love other people to get ahead. Maybe even do dishonest or illegal things to keep the level of income that you have, to keep that job. More and more there's Christians, right? Ethics are out the window. There are Christians who will have to say no to an employer or a supervisor and you may not get promoted to what you could be. You may be demoted, you may be shunned, or you may even lose your job. But if money is your God and not just a good thing, you'll cross over the line because this is most important and it is what my world is built around. You'll exploit people, you'll be dishonest, and and you'll be willing to uproot your family and move cross country to take that job. Let me hit pause. I'm not saying it's always a sin to move to take another job. Not trying to keep all of you here. I have a kingdom mindset. But folks, there are times a man or woman will uproot their family and move cross country. No consideration of, is there a good church in that area that we can continue to be fed? What about the school system? What about relationships and friends? How will this impact my wife and children? None of that matters. Money. They're going to pay me more money. It's that next step for me in this career. Regardless of how it impacts relationships. What about marriage? Is marriage a good thing? Is it a gift that God gave us? Oh yeah. But what if? What if you shift and you settle into a mindset that says, I have to be married. In fact, life only starts once you're married. I don't even have a life. I'll never have the good life. I will not be happy. I cannot be happy unless I'm married. Now, again, this is dicey because is it sinful to desire marriage? No. The Bible says that's normal, but here's where it gets tricky. Here's how it shows desire, open hand. When it shifts to, oh, but I must be married. I will never even be happy, have joy, have a sense of purpose until I am married. Now, Something bad really happened. You've taken a good thing, turned it into an ultimate thing. And here's what will happen if you do that. Two possibilities. You'll either be way too picky about who you're considering because so much is riding on it, right? This needs to be this glorious Mr. Perfect or Miss Perfect because my whole world is riding on this. Everything depends on this. Or, or you'll be way too desperate and you'll ignore warnings. You'll ignore, oh, so he's not a Christian, but he said he'll go to church with me. Ladies, let me help you, run. Men will go to church and show interest in spiritual things when they're after you. Was he going to church before you met him? No, that's who he is, Ron. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Oh, but we get along. Oh, we can talk. Oh, he's funny. Oh, my word. Put funny way over there. In our culture, funny, he's become like, oh, he's funny. Does he work hard? Does he keep a job? Funny won't get it in the marriage. Nothing's funny after you get married to Mr. Funny and he doesn't work. It's just not funny anymore. You'll be the main breadwinner that has to carry insurance because Mr. Funny is so busy being funny, he doesn't hold down jobs. 
You'll be so desperate, you will say yes to people that you should not have said yes to because you need it too much. You want it too much. You've built your world around it too much. And to top it off, get this. If you do get married and you've made too much of marriage, here's what'll happen. You will be so controlling and demanding and you'll have, because you'll have so many expectations about what this thing has to look like, you'll come into it. We all come into it with expectations that get shattered. But I'm talking, you are turbocharged on a steroid level. I'm like, oh, I thought it was gonna be, oh, and I thought, because you've waited for this, this was what was gonna fulfill you. I was gonna feel complete. Oh my goodness, you don't need Jesus less when you get married, you need him more. Don't shift and say, oh, I needed Jesus while I was single. Now I have him. You'll need Jesus more. Now I have her. You still need Jesus to be the primary relationship and lover of your soul where you're finding joy and purpose. Jesus. That marriage cannot bear the weight of all your expectations. So much is riding on it. Here's what will happen. The weight of all your expectations in that marriage will crush that other person. Because marriage was never designed to bear the weight of all your desires and sense of purpose and joy and identity. Never. Nothing in this world. Again, is marriage good? Did God give it to us? Did he ever intend for it to take the place of Jesus? Louder. No. No. What about children? What's the Bible teach? Are children a blessing? Are they a gift? Okay. Oh. But what if, what if you build your whole world around either, I must have children. It's a good gift. I want that good gift. Is it wrong to want children? What if it becomes, I cannot be happy, I cannot feel fulfilled, I cannot have the good. Or if after you have them, you say, oh my goodness, I'm loving this. Goodbye, Jesus. Goodbye, spouse. Children. And you build your world around your children and you make your heart's first love your children instead of Jesus. Now, trust me. I have five kids that are all age 30 to 18 now. It's easy to do when they're little. They are so precious. And their little outfits and the things they say. I understand. They won't stay that way. Trust me. I still love them all, but ooh. Ooh, it's gonna get hard. If you shift and you build your whole world around your children and make them your first love, let me tell you what's gonna happen. Your sense of joy and well-being and success will now all be tied up in your kids so that you don't just love them. It's all dependent on their love back to you and how well they do and the choices they make and their success. It's all your very essence and life is riding on them. Trust me, that's a scary place to be. In other words, you don't just love them, you worship them. You've built your whole world. I know you don't bow down in the kitchen and say, come here, I worship you, all of you. But that's where your heart is. Oh my goodness, I don't just love them, I worship them, it's why I live. It's, it's my number one reason for living. Don't hear me saying fathers and mothers don't love your kids. Do hear me saying, don't love them too much. You say, could you possibly love your kids too much? Yes. Yes. Every time I pop into the bedroom with Vicky, I'm downstairs watching real thrillers with people getting beat up and arms cut off. She's not interested. So she's up watching these shows like snapped. You know, why did this woman die? Who killed her? It's always the husband and it's always antifreeze. Like how many of these do you want to watch? But here's what, when I pop in, say, how's it going, baby love? I got a great one going on. 
here's what I hear. Oh man, I've heard it a dozen times. They're interviewing friends. She's dead. And they're like, oh my goodness, she was the best mom. She loved her kids. Those kids were her. There's two different ways I've heard it in. Life or world. Oh, and everybody nods like, oh yes, God love her. That's how it's supposed to be. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. And it's perhaps why he killed her. He's tired. He's tired of being over here like, whatever. I know he helped me produce these kids, but I'm done with him. It's my kids. It's my kids. Oh, they're her world. No. No, 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 no. These are the things that produce, by the way. The world often has another term for the very things the Bible talks about. Have you heard the term midlife crisis or empty nest? Guess what that's all about? It's the exposure of idolatry. A woman or a man, but it's most often a woman, built her whole world around the kids. And you can do that for maybe 18, 20 years, but guess what? They're supposed to launch. And when they go, if your whole world was your kids, your whole world collapses. And you say, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I don't have purpose and meaning. I don't have joy. And, and you'll be clingy and you'll get in the way of their marriage. And you'll still want your son's first love to be to you and not her. And you'll be a problem in that marriage. Or a guy, and it could be a woman, builds their whole world around career and what they do. And then in their 50s, like my age, or 60s, and it happens all the time, they let you go just five years before retirement and full benefits and all that. It's not just painful, it's devastating. Because it was your, and so the guy tries to take the hair on his neck and grow it on the top of his head, and he, he buys a sports car, and he divorces his wife and marries two that are 20. It's like, what is wrong with you? He doesn't know where he belongs and what's going on because his whole world, it's not just, oh, I do this, for a living, I am this. I am a mother. I am a process engineer or a graphic designer. That's a midlife crisis because something had a place in your life it was never intended to. Now, don't hear me saying it won't be painful. Even if you have this right, it's painful to have these things happen to you. It's not wrong to feel pain as a mother or to cry. We got our last one, Lord willing, moving in the fall. That's sad. There's a measure of sadness. It's like, oh my goodness, we've had kids in our home forever. It's like, there's not gonna be, and then friends aren't gonna be, I like other teenagers in the home. So while she's been at Dixie, then we have other kids. It's gonna be quiet, and I'm gonna miss some of that for about five minutes. (laughs) And then I'm gonna run naked through the home because kids are gone, and we're gonna do what I've been wanting to do a long time. See you. My sweet baby love, if you've kept that relationship alive as you should have, there should be some sorrow and also, oh, we can see more of each other. We can talk in the car without spelling things. We can play the music we want. We can watch the shows we want. It's like, listen to Paul Tripp. He talks about a woman he was counseling and he says this, because here's what I want you to think right now. If you're sitting here and you have kids and you're thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not doing that. I love them, but I, but I haven't built an altar. I haven't. Here's what you need to understand. I'm not picking on you in particular. It's true of all of us. Very often you don't know what you have inappropriately put in the wrong place until it's taken or shaken. You lose it. Or somehow it doesn't happen or work out like you thought. And all of a sudden, you learn something about your heart you didn't even know. Paul Tripp talks about a woman he was counseling. He says this, Joanna thought she had grown in her faith. The problem was that she had forgotten who she was. And it was not long before her identity in Christ was replaced by another identity. Joanna's children became her new identity. They gave her meaning and purpose, and they really did give her hope and joy. The problem was they were not sent by God to do any of that. Joanna lived vicariously through them, and the more she did, the more she became obsessed with their success. 
Although Joanna was just as faithful in her personal devotions and public worship, God was no longer at the center of who she was. All it took was her son Jimmy to mess it all up. With all his inner turmoil, Jimmy didn't make a very good trophy. Being with Jimmy often meant unexpected confrontations and public embarrassment. Her girls were forced to live in the, in the wings of Jimmy's drama and they didn't turn out to be trophy children either. Now that all her children were adults, Joanna was lost. In their tumultuous launch into adulthood, the kids not only broke Joanna's heart, They also robbed her of her identity. She felt like it had all been for naught. When she looked in the mirror, she felt like she didn't know the person she saw there. You understand what he's saying? Oh, I beg you, love your children. But do not worship them by building your whole world and sense of purpose and identity around them. You, especially moms, you're more than a mother. You're the bride of Jesus Christ. And that relationship with your Savior has to take precedence and always be the ultimate relationship at the center of your life and your heart. So that that relationship with your bridegroom, Jesus, is what informs you and is your very identity. If you let something else take the throne of your heart, not only will you be lost, here's what I want you to understand, it's impacting your kids and other people, you will be unable to truly love people the way you should because you need them too much. Henry Nguyen said, in order to be of service to others, we have to die to them. When you worship your kids and you need them to love you and that's, you get everything you need from them, you can't truly love them. You can't. We have to give up measuring our meaning and value with the yardstick of others. Thus, we become free to be compassionate. You can't even love your kids or other people like you should if you need them more than you should because you've built your world around them as your ultimate source of identity. In other words, idolatry or what Augustine called disordered loves, they're disordered. I got the wrong loves in the wrong place. Idolatry or disordered loves will actually keep you from obeying the two great commands. You remember when the Jewish religious leaders pressed Jesus and said, hey, we're getting confused. Boil it down. Bottom line it for us, Jesus. What's the great command? Matthew 22, 37 to 39, what do you say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second command is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Idolatry and disordered loves will mess up both your vertical relationship of truly loving God and your horizontal relationships of loving other people. Let me give you one more. What about work, achievement? Work is good, right? We did a whole series on work. Your work matters to God. We're created in the image of God. But if you shift where work is how you prove your worth and you have your sense of meaning, it'll drive you to work more hours than you should at the expense of your emotional health, physical health, spiritual life. And here's the other thing. When it happens, and it's probably coming sooner than you think, that you are no longer at the top of your game of what you do. I know it's coming for me. Someone's going to have to say, you don't make sense anymore. Stop. It's coming for all of us to some degree that you're not at the top of your game anymore. It'll be hard. I haven't met anybody yet that's convinced I shouldn't drive, I shouldn't preach. Someone else usually has to say, you shouldn't drive, you shouldn't preach, this is scary. It'll be hard, but if that has become synonymous with your identity, you have no separate identity, it's devastating. Chris Everett, tennis player, and here's my point. Some of you are like, what, who? That's right, that's how this works. When I was a boy, she was a big deal. Some of you don't even know who she is. 
Chris Everett captures this well when she was nearing retirement. Exactly what we're talking about. Listen to what she says. And she was the top female tennis player in the world. Her career win-loss record was the best for a singles player in history. But here's what she said as she was getting closer to retirement and knew, I'm not winning. There's young people coming in at 19 and 20 and, and the ball's so fast I can't even see it. She said, quote, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. What about you? Have you taken a good thing like children or marriage or work? And have you made it an ultimate thing and built your world around it? If you do that... You're headed for disaster because you're guilty of idolatry. So what's the answer? It's my third point. Number three, your heart won't let go and be still until, until it rests in something better. Or I would say lays hold of really someone better. That's why Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find their Rest in thee. Hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In other words, you can't change your life by raw effort or willpower. That'll never get it done. And Augustine knew this because he was reading his Bible. That our biggest problem is not lack of effort. It's disordered loves. We've got the wrong loves in the wrong place in our lives even good things. And so real change starts in the heart when you begin to sort out and repent of even good things that you've allowed to become ultimate things and they have the wrong place in your life. Even unbelievers. I love it how I like to read. I don't always just read Christian books. I love it how often unbelievers will bump right up against biblical truth from time to time. You either say it or write it. Listen to what this woman who's trying to help women with food, eating problems. In her book, Women, Food, and God, Janine Roth, who's not even writing as a Christian, says this, quote, women turn to food when they're not hungry because they are hungry for something they can't name, a connection to what is beyond the concerns of daily life, something deathless, something sacred. But replacing the hunger for divine connection with double-stuffed Oreos is like giving a glass of sand to a person dying of thirst. It only creates more thirst and more panic. Food, work, marriage, children, none of it was designed to settle you and satisfy you. If you go there, it will only create more thirst and more panic that'll cause you to make another bad decision in light of that bad decision. And and you'll end up places you'll say, I don't know how I got here. I never meant to be here. This is not the life that I wanted to have. And you will have fear and confusion. But the change, real freedom and help starts with the heart. It's the same thing Thomas Chalmers was talking about 200 years ago. He has a famous sermon that's entitled, The Expulsive Power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. And in that sermon, he offers this keen insight because he says, even after we see the stupidity and destruction of our own sinful choices, as well as how empty and sad what we're chasing after and trying to cling to leaves us, we still don't give them up. It's so true, I'm a pastor, I do counseling. You'll just see people, they, they won't give it up. They want to still chase the same thing and get you to help them get better results. They're still convinced this is what will satisfy me, but it hadn't worked out and they don't come saying, tell me what would. They, they want you to help them do the same thing and get better results. That's how tenacious we are in what we want and what we think. We keep on wanting the same thing, he says, until we see someone better. He says, only after 
after you start changing when you see Jesus and how he can make you alive in ways that your darling sins cannot. I would add your darling children cannot, your job, friends cannot. Can you truly change? Listen, so here's what I want you to know. It can be dark to go to the heart. You do need to ask God, help me see some of my heart. But let me give you some hope here. If you really want to change, spend more time loving and learning about Jesus. You say, but I'm already a Christian. I know. But I believe there are Christians that Jesus is nothing more than a speck in their rearview mirror. They started with him, but they've not cultivated an intimacy with him, a depth with him, a love for him that delights their soul and keeps them so satisfied. And it's why they keep going other places, sometimes the same places the world goes. Don't just examine your heart. Take more time to fall in love with Jesus. And you, listen to me, as you begin to grow in your relationship with Christ, as you're knowing God through his son, Jesus Christ, here's what will start happening. You will find that you have the expulsive power of a new affection that enables you to say no to lesser loves until you have a greater affection and you're so satisfied, you'll struggle to say no to lesser loves because this is as good as it gets. Does that make sense? It's not just examining and combing over your heart. Grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed thinking you have to be some kind of master analyst to come out of the fog. Let me help you. One prayer that you could pray. We pray pray prayers that I think bounce off the ceiling. But there are things that God is like, oh my goodness, if you would pray this, I would love to answer. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my, say it, heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that. But now I got to warn you. I don't want you to not pray it, but I feel compelled to tell you. When you pray that, very often the only way, and I've prayed it, and I've experienced some of what I'm about to tell you, but it's worth it. Very often, the only way God can answer that prayer is through adversity because heat is often the only thing that can push to the surface what's really going on in your heart, heat. Samuel Rutherford in the 1600s was a godly pastor that was put in prison for two years for preaching the gospel. And we're not talking to prison today with an exercise room and entertainment. Rough. In prison for two years, but, but it's amazing. He says he made this great discovery about the source of real happiness while he was in prison. Listen to what he says. It might sound shocking at first, but it's what we're talking about. He says, quote, if God told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world and then told me that he was gonna begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing from me all my usual sources of enjoyment. I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose, and yet how in his wisdom manifest is made manifest even in this. For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wanted to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let the light of heaven in. You understand what he's saying? That's us so often in a dark, trapped in a dark room, bowing down to our little flickering light of children or marriage or career or success or image or stuff. All the while, there's a greater, more glorious light that's found in Jesus. But God knows we'll never turn from our little lamps until he blows some of them out. And I don't want you to think, oh, what a mean God. 
He's good. He loves us enough that he'll blow out some of our lamps because he knows we were designed for a greater love, greater light. In commenting on this quote from Samuel Rutherford, John Piper says this, oh, how I pray that when God in his mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. Let me ask you, has God been blowing out some of your lamps? You're like, I don't understand. God, this is and it's a good thing. Help me. Are you cursing the wind? Let me encourage you. Ask God to help you examine your heart and see things you haven't seen before. Don't waste your pain. Listen to me. Don't waste your suffering. Suffering and pain is an amazing time to see things about your heart you couldn't see in peaceful, easy times. And when you begin to see things about your heart, oh, real change can begin. Real freedom can begin. Real joy can begin. Don't hear me saying it's easy, but it's worth it. When God in his mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I don't want to curse the wind. He's good. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for loving us enough to give us your word, to give us your spirit. Oh, but to give us your son, not to start with Jesus on this Christian journey, but to stay with Jesus for a lifetime. First affection, first love. Oh, God, in our pain, in our confusion, in our darkness, help us not to curse you. Help us not to pull away. Help us not to accuse. Help us to humble ourselves and to see things we haven't seen before, that we might live in ways we hadn't been able to live before, saying no to lesser loves and finding great freedom in loving you and loving other people and living for what matters most and making an impact on a level we never could before. Help us. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.